History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of Persia, episode 70, Darius Do-Over, aka Armenia 2. What happened to Armenia 1? Well, that's over on Patreon as a bonus episode. Don't worry, you don't need it to understand what's going on today, but the history of Armenia will weave in and out over the course of the history of Persia. Sometimes it will be in the main narrative. Other times, a quick summary is more than enough to keep us from getting bogged down. But I like telling stories, so I'll keep track of the less relevant parts in bonus episodes. Last time, we bid farewell to a lot of the royal family. Amestris, wife of Xerxes and daughter of the Antibardia conspirator Otanes, died in her 80s. Her son, Artaxerxes I, died in his 60s. Supposedly, his wife, Demospia, died on the same day. He was succeeded by his only legitimate son, Xerxes II, but within a month and a half, Xerxes II was murdered by his half-brother, Sogdianus. Six months later, Sogdianus was lured into a trap and murdered by another half-brother, Ocus, who took on our first regnal name, Darius II. Alright everybody, this is Trevor from about three episodes of writing and several hours of trying to figure out how the hell someone is supposed to write about Darius II in a coherent manner later. The answer, according to every book I consulted, is to give up on a coherent timeline and tackle things thematically. So that's part of what I'm going to do. 
but this is still a narrative chronological history podcast, so things will be in order within each theme for a few episodes. It's just the way this has got to go. That means that this episode will not exactly follow the stinger from the end of episode 69. The best way to handle this seems to be to save coming to blows with Athens and publishing the Behistun inscription again for upcoming episodes. Instead, this episode is going to be all about internal conflict on the interior of the Empire and the formation of Darius's court. Darius II, who claimed the throne almost immediately after his father's death, had a busy first year as king, but the power struggle was not over. Several Greek and Latin authors, most notably Theseus, record a series of rebellions and struggles for power in Darius's reign, at least some of which came immediately after he took the throne. Most of that first year or so after taking power went off without a hitch. The upper echelons of Sogdianus's supporters were imprisoned, probably awaiting trial or at least waiting for the king to decide how much he liked any of them. Obviously, one of those captives was Menosthenes, the son of the sitting satrap in Babylon, and that kind of treachery could hardly stand, so a new satrap was needed in Babylonia. Menosthenes' father came quietly, and for now, a sort of interim governor named Siha apparently took the reins. But he was quickly replaced by a new Gobrius. No word on if this guy was descended from Mardonius or one of his brothers, but it seems entirely plausible. Babylon was still an important gig, and so far as we know, that family was still important. It's in this time frame that we can piece together a funny story from the dull receipts and contracts of the Murashu archive. The family's namesake, the man actually named Murashu, was either dead or retired at this point, so his eldest son was running the show. This was Enlil Nadine Shum, who had the honor of managing some of Darius's properties when he returned to Babylon for the first time since becoming king. Enlil Nadine Shum desperately wanted an audience with the king himself, and was willing to pay bribes to get it. He massively overbid on the land management contract with the crown and doted on the royal entourage, but nothing came of any of this. Darius moved on to Susa after just 11 days in town, and Enlil Nadine Shum had to go back to trying to con farmers out of their land. But the new regime found themselves in the hot seat by the end of 422. Even though the empire briefly went quiet following the murder of Sogdianus, the last of Artaxerxes' documented sons made his play for power. Once again, Assyria was causing problems. Now, I do want to apologize for some of the names up front. It might get a little confusing. But there's not much to be done here. Arda, the divine truth of the universe, was really just that important and wound up in a lot of names. There are so many A names, and almost all of them start with R or something. This time, the rebel wasn't one of Darius's half-brothers. 
It was his full-blooded brother, the other son of the Babylonian concubine Cosmartidene, named Aristes. Of course, I am making a bit of an assumption here. Our only real source for the internal Persian narrative in this period is Theseus, who doesn't say why Aristes rebelled. I'm just assuming he wanted power for himself, because if not, what the hell was he doing? He was in the exact same unenviable position as Megabizus and Zopyrus 20 years earlier. Almost all of his immediate neighbors openly backed Darius in the struggle for power. He was the king's full brother. If anyone stood to benefit from the new arrangement, it should have been him. Or maybe not. If you remember from the last episode, there were 11 other sons of Artaxerxes I that we only know of because Theseus references how many sons there were total. We never hear about any of them ever again. That is a lot of royal brothers to just vanish into thin air. In those numbers, we'd expect somebody to turn up as at least one of the Western satraps. The popular theory is that one of Darius's early actions was to detain and execute all of his half-brothers to put an end to potential rivals. If that's what happened, then maybe Aristes was rebelling in preemptive self-preservation. But it wouldn't be an Assyrian revolt without a member of the Megabizid clan playing their part. Fortunately for Aristes, Megabizus's youngest son, Artifios, was still in the satrap's court in Damascus. Artifios would have been a valuable source of what-not-to-do information at the very least. So for the second year in a row, the call went out in Babylon to prepare for war. Evidently, most people called on for military service were able to carry over their preparations from the previous year because we don't see the same economic pressure and mortgages from year two under Darius II. It's still higher than normal, but not nearly the massive spike seen in 424 and 423. The other plausible option is that Darius didn't need to put as much pressure on Babylonia alone. Since Assyria was the target rather than Elam, he could draw on the resources of Egypt and Anatolia to take pressure off of the Babylonians. Still, there was definitely pressure in Babylon. This conflict gives us one rare glimpse into the lives of relatively ordinary people within the Persian Empire. Namely, these are two guys named Gadalyama and Rimet Ninurta. Beginning way back under Nebuchadnezzar II, when Babylon was still the capital of its own empire in the early 6th century BC, a new system of resource management started developing. This took the form of collectives called hatrus. Often these were a collection of smaller agricultural plots grouped together into a single unit. But that wasn't the only use of a hatru. There were also merchants' and craftsmen's hatrus, and even hatrus for low-level bureaucrats. Any category that could have some kind of responsibility to the government could be grouped together like this. Primarily, it was to share a tax burden, but also other civic duties like military service. 
Military service was the primary use for the Hatru system. Land in a Hatru would be given to potential soldiers as a reward for military service. In peacetime, you'd work the land as a farmer, and during wartime, some of the Hatru's residents could be called back to active duty, or, over time, their sons and grandsons. Their exact role in the military was determined by the size and resources of a given Hatru. The smallest were called bow estates, and they were required to furnish an infantryman, i.e. someone who carried a bow. Then came the horse estates, which provided cavalry. And finally, the largest were chariot estates. They provided carrots, obviously. Often, these collectives functioned as military colonies for non-Babylonians, especially for Iranian peoples from the Eastern Empire. This even included Saka from the northern frontiers. This had the dual purpose of putting veteran soldiers with no loyalty to the Babylonian establishment in Babylonia, and rewarding veterans from the less fertile parts of the empire with excellent farmland. The Achaemenids may have adapted this system from the Babylonians themselves, who used a similar concept for their deported enemies, including the Jews during their famous Babylonian captivity. To make things just a shade more complicated, Hatrus could be independent or legally bound to the authority of a larger institution like a noble's estate, a temple, or a larger landlord. Sometimes, people could own land inside and outside of a given Hatru, or in multiple Hatrus. Over time, between marriages and sales and land contracts, things got complicated. And that brings me back to Gadolyama and Rimet Ninurta. Gadolyama came from a Jewish family. The Yama in his name is the Akkadian pronunciation of Yahweh the traditionally unspoken name of God that shows up in lots of Hebrew names. Basically, any time you see a J-A or J-E in a biblical name, that's working from the same naming convention as Gadolyama. His father, named Rahum Ili, was one of the landholders in a horse estate but one or more of the other owners had taken out a mortgage against their stake in the Hatru with the Marashu family and defaulted on the loan. This led to Rimit Ninurta, the son of Marashu, becoming an official owner of part of the same Hatru as Gadolyama's father. Based on the contract we have here, it seems like this was technically accomplished by adopting one of the other Marashu brothers into Rahim Ili and Gadolyama's family. The complex web of ownership and responsibility made Rimit Ninurta responsible for the Hatru's military duties in 422. Of course, the scion of an extremely wealthy banking clan with personal ties to the new king had no interest in going to war as a cavalryman. So he struck a deal with Gadolyama. Gadolyama would serve in his place and go to war instead of Rimit Ninurta, but the son of Marashu would pay for everything. Rimit Ninurta fronted the cost of a horse, its bit and saddle, a shirt and hood of iron mail, a set of riding clothes, 
a bronze quiver, two spears, a sidearm, maybe some kind of sword or axe, 130 arrows, and a ration of silver to pay for provisions. Garoyama took his new equipment and his horse and rode south to the city of Uruk, where the army was gathering. Once there, he would have to present a copy of this contract and register with the quartermaster in Rimet Ninurta's place. The contract was signed in midwinter between 422 and 421, and Garoyama would have set out that spring, probably just after celebrating Akitu, the Mesopotamian New Year's festival, which coincidentally also tended to mark the beginning of the campaign season. This new army was placed under the command of Artaseris, a noble in the Hidarnid family from the Eastern Empire. They marched into Assyria only to be defeated by the rebels twice. In their third confrontation, Artaseris squared up against Artiphios, the son of Megabizus. The loyalist forces were victorious, and Artiphios went into retreat. We don't know what their next step would have been, but Artaseris threw a wrench into the rebel plan. See, the rebels in Assyria had followed the example of Megabizus and hired an army of Greek mercenaries. Artaseris offered a better price, and the mercenaries did as mercenaries are wont to do. They followed the highest bidder. Artiphios was left with just his local levies and no choice but to surrender. When he got word of the victory, Darius wanted to execute Artiphios immediately, but his wife, Perisatis, counseled against it. With all of the recent double-crossing and fratricide, Aristes did not have much reason to trust his brother right now. But their father had set a useful precedent. Twenty years earlier, when Megabizus rebelled, royal blood relations persevered in the negotiations, and Megabizus was allowed to live peacefully at court. Darius made Aristes the same offer, and used Artiphios' continued survival as proof that he could be lenient. Aristes surrendered, and then both rebel leaders were promptly burned to death with hot ashes. They were soon followed by the remaining prisoners who had supported Sogdianus. Darius II, much like Darius I, had no time for possible rivals and rebel dynasts. Unfortunately, his reign was utterly plagued with them. By 421, the royal court would have been in shambles. The sons of Artaxerxes and their personal supporters had been culled down to just Darius's personal clique. A number of satraps had to be removed as well, so there was some building back to do, and a coterie of new advisors formed around the king. Chief among them was Perisatis. Like all royal women in Greek sources, there's a tendency to portray her as a deciding factor in final judgments, and vindictive to the point of cruelty. That said, Perisatis was not as cruel as her grandmother, Xerxes' wife Amestris. Perisatis was a politician in her own right, and would offer much more counsel in more realistic scenarios than any other dukeshish we have encountered. 
That said, she still wasn't somebody you wanted to cross. And much like Amestris, she was very defensive of her family. But she couldn't always have Darius's ear. After all, she spent much of his early reign pregnant. Perisatis had 13 pregnancies when all was said and done, but only five of her children lived to adulthood. Well, four, depending on how you interpret Persian law, but that's a story for another day. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Speaking of those pregnancies, I guess this is where Darius II's family tree gets to go thanks to the weird nature of the narrative right now. Thanks to recent events, it's not nearly as sprawling as some of his predecessors. Killing all of Artaxerxes' viable male heirs really prunes the family tree. First up is Darius and Perisatis' adult son, Arsakes. Arshaka in Old Persian. He was born well before Ochus ever contemplated becoming Darius II. He would have been in his mid-twenties or maybe even mid-thirties at this point. The royal couple also had an adult daughter, Amestris, evidently named for her great-grandmother. Immediately after Darius came to power, Perisatis gave birth to the bouncing baby Cyrus, who we typically call Cyrus the Younger, as opposed to the Great. He may actually have been born before Sogdianus was even dead. 
Cyrus was followed immediately by Artostes, and then a series of eight miscarriages and infant deaths interrupted by one healthy son named Oxendrus. It's worth noting that no source suggests that Darius had nearly the harem of his father, nor that he had many, or even any, bastard children. Concubines and bastards could cause a lot of trouble. Darius would know. I'd go into information about siblings here, but, uh, they're all dead, so moving on. When Parisatus wasn't looking over Darius's shoulder, the Paphlagonian eunuch Artoxeres was. Evidently, Artoxeres had been busy gaining experience during his exile in Armenia, because he returned to court not as a mere functionary, but as one of the leading figures in Darius's rise to power. Theseus mentions two other noteworthy eunuch advisors, but they never come back in the narrative, and I don't want to add more A names to this list. This wasn't unusual at all. Every dozen episodes or so, we've seen a castrated advisor or two getting sucked into the royal intrigue. Well, Artoxeres is no different. At some point in the course of Darius's reign, Artoxeres was implicated in a plot to murder the king. As Theseus tells it, Artoxeres wore a fake beard and planned to seize power for himself. That is, unlikely, shall we say? A servant woman informed on him, and Artoxeres was executed. This may have provided some room for Arsaces to start taking a more active role in his father's court. There are lots of plausible explanations for why Artoxeres might have betrayed Darius so soon after riding his coattails to power and influence. If you place these events early in Darius's reign, one explanation could be Prince Arsaces himself, depending on which Greek source you follow. If he was in his mid-twenties, Artoxeres may have been hoping to reenact the accession of Artaxerxes I and rule through a young and inexperienced king. However, Artoxeres' motives could equally have been tied up in a ridiculous family drama playing out in Armenia, if you shift this assassination attempt toward the end of Darius's reign. After the incident with Megabyzus and Artaxerxes on their lion hunt, Artoxeres had been sent to Armenia, where he joined the court of the local satrap, a man named Hidarnes. And much like the last sweeping family drama from the Megabyzid clan, the Hidarnid family takes us way back to where else Darius and his co-conspirators in 522. One of those conspirators was Hidarnes, the son of Bagabina, who is probably the most important of the conspirators we haven't already discussed. It was Hidarnes who led Darius's armies in Media and brought an end to the largest revolt against Persian authority during the wars with the Lyre Kings. As a reward, some scholars think that his family was given the satrap of Armenia as a hereditary right. Strictly speaking, the king could dismiss or reassign the family at any time, 
but doing so was more politically fraught and would involve going back on royal guarantees. Again, if Achaemenid Armenia is something that interests you, I just did a bonus episode on that very topic for Patreon. You should check it out and the other patron benefits at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. The family certainly remained important. The original Hidarnes' son, let's say Hidarnes II, sometimes labeled Hidarnes the Younger, was the commander of the Immortals under Xerxes. He led both of their attacks at Thermopylae, once in a futile attempt to force their way through the pass, and again in the successful flanking maneuver that wiped out the Greeks. He then accompanied Xerxes back to Persia, where he served for several more years, and if his father wasn't given Armenia for military service, then Hidarnes II almost certainly was because his descendants absolutely did rule there. Meanwhile, his brother, Sisamnes, led the Arians during the invasion of Greece, which is often taken to mean that he was the satrap of Arya. It's not entirely clear if this position was hereditary or not, but his descendants might have remained in the east until the reign of Darius II. Artaceris, who commanded the armies during the most recent Assyrian revolt, was noted as coming from Bactria by later historians. We know he was the descendant of a Hidarnes, just not which Hidarnes. The Sisamnes branch of the family makes a logical jumping-off point. Some later Armenian historians insert another generation with Orontes as the father of Artaceris, but that might be later myth-making to try and square some ancient genealogies. The timeline gets a bit fuzzy, but this is where we enter Hidarnes III, who I think is the son of Hidarnes II. There's some debate, could be a grandson, not a big deal. He was the satrap of Armenia during the end of Artaxerxes I and the beginning of Darius II. This would have been the satrap Artaxerxes worked with, and it was Hidarnes who sent Artaxerxes back to the court of Darius II to show Armenian support. Hidarnes was one of Darius's most important supporters. As an elder member of one of the empire's great families, his influence meant something, and Darius rewarded that support after he had the throne. Unlike the original Hidarnes and Darius, there wasn't any territory for Hidarnes III to get from Darius II. Instead, Hidarnes and Darius sealed their alliance with a pair of weddings. But to really get into that, I actually have to do a bit of family tree stuff again. Arsakes would marry one of Hidarnes' daughters, a noble woman named Statera. In turn, Amestris married Hidarnes' eldest son, named Teratukmes. Sometime after this, Hidarnes died, and Teratukmes became the new satrap of Armenia. I'll be totally honest, we're completely in the wilderness in terms of dates. Broadly speaking, the marriage alliance happened around 423, and the story comes to an end around 408. 
At first, all was well, but then George R.R. R. Martin took over the history book. Hidarnes left a sizable brood of children behind. First, we have his daughters. Two are mentioned, but not named, by Theseus. Then there was Roxane, a woman warrior. Women were typically a degree more emancipated in Persian high society than their better documented Greek or Judean counterparts, but this still wasn't something we see very often. A generation later, Theseus heard Roxane described as beautiful to behold and an extremely experienced archer and javelin thrower. In all likelihood, those were skills honed in hunting rather than fighting, but there is a reason the warrior class of ancient kingdoms liked hunting so much. Their brothers run the gamut in terms of importance. On one end, you have the younger sons of Hidarnes, Metrostes, and Helicus. They apparently continued to serve minor regional roles in Armenia after their father's death. On the other side, we've met Teratukmes, the new satrap in Armenia. But we also have Tissaphernes. Tissaphernes had the good fortune to get out while things were still all sunshine and rainbows for his family. He became the new satrap of Lydia after a rebellion there in 420 BC. We're just going to have to wait another episode for that one. In terms of prestige, this would have been a massive coup for the Hidarnid family. Their extended family was all over the empire. They were married to the king's eldest son and eldest daughter. They ruled at least two provinces. They commanded the king's armies in the imperial corps itself. And every new son was a chance to install a new member of the family as a regional governor. So naturally, Teratukmes torched it all for mad, incestuous love. His marriage to Amestris had started out well enough, and they even had a son not long after their wedding. But Teratukmes just couldn't shake a thing he had for Roxane, his own sister. As Theseus tells the story, she was just so beautiful and so talented it couldn't be helped. And the more Teratukmes fell for Roxane, the more he resented Amestris. As the reign of Darius II wore on, friction developed between the satrap of Armenia and the Achaemenid dynasty. This may have been fueled by a changing political situation in Anatolia. Armenia accounted for about one-third of the peninsula, the eastern third. Immediately to the west was Cappadocia, and beyond that, Lydia and Phrygia. In 408 BC, all three of those other provinces fell under the control of the young prince Cyrus. Teratukmes's brother, Tissaphernes, was demoted to the regional governor of Caria to facilitate this. And suddenly, there must have been a great deal of pressure on Armenia. Teratukmes plotted a revolt. Theseus says that he conspired with 300 men, which could be a lot of the Armenian nobility, or just his personal guards. Regardless, these 300 men were tasked with throwing Princess Amestris into a sack, dragging her out of the palace, and stabbing her to death as the opening salvo of his war with the king. 
it's hard to imagine that this was anything less than a move to secede from the Persian Empire. Armenia was relatively wealthy, defensible, and had a history of powerful independent kings before the Achaemenids. There was a chance for this all to go very badly for Darius. But not everyone in Armenia was so eager to rebel. One of Teratukmes's advisors was a noble named Udiastes. And Darius reached out with an offer. Udiastes would get a personal donation from the royal treasury if he could save a mistress and deal with this Teratukmes situation. To his credit, Udiastes did what he could even though the message only arrived after Amestris's death. Apparently, this was not a simple assassination. Udiastes must have raised a small army to attack the satrap's palace, because Theseus reports that 37 assassins were killed in the fight before Teratukmes went down. This actually split Udiastes' own family. His son, Mithridates, was one of Teratukmes' personal guardsmen and was enraged by his father's actions. Mithridates took Teratukmes' son, presumably a son he had with a mistress and thus a royal grandson, and fled to the city of Tsarus. Once there, Mithridates seized control of the city, but Teratukmes' son is just never named. Fortunately for the royal family, nobody rallied to this remnant of the rebel cause. Artaceris and royal authorities were able to take control of Armenia, and the remaining family of Teratukmes was detained and executed. At this point, it was only tradition that the most aggrieved and influential woman in court got to choose the punishments. Perisatis was furious over the brutal murder of her only daughter. She ordered most of the family buried alive, while Roxane was just hacked to pieces by the executioners, evidently in retaliation for Amestris's death. If Perisatis had her way, her own daughter-in-law, Statera, was destined for the chopping block. But at that point, Arsakes had to intervene. He mollified his mother and got her to spare his wife's life. It's most likely that Arsakes did this by going over his mother's head to his father and convincing Darius to command the stay of execution. Parasatis would continue to nurse this grudge for years to come. Darius's intervention seems to have included an end to all hostilities over the Armenian affair in general. If they weren't dead yet, the family of Teratukmes got to live. And this story comes from Theseus, who is noted for his ridiculous melodramatic stories all throughout Persian history, and a version of very early Persian history that does not at all align with the other existing sources. However, he also acted as Parasodus' personal physician near the end of her life. I'm of a mind to believe him on topics regarding her family, and certainly her own motivations. He may have embellished here and there, but I think the outline of events and Parasodus' reaction is genuine. Artaceris, remember, a distant cousin from the earlier Hidarnid family, 
was appointed King's Eye in Armenia, according to Xenophon. Generally, that title meant something like royal observer in an independent court. But nobody actually identifies who became Satrap next. Artaceris makes the most sense. He had a hereditary claim, he was in the area, and we know for a fact that his son, Orontes, went on to hold that position. For the time being, that Orontes joined Udiostes as one of Armenia's local governors, as did the still unnamed son of Teratukmes, who was allowed to live following the destruction of his family. Over in Caria, Tissaphernes managed to keep his head down while his relatives self-imploded. It's possible that Artaceris' role as King's Eye was a placeholder, while Cyrus the Younger expanded his military authority to include Armenia as well, though this is pure speculation on my part. The basis for that is that one final revolt occurred in the Central Empire during Darius II's reign. In 406 BC, the Caducians revolted. They were a tribal culture on the southeastern shore of the Caspian Sea, around the modern Iran-Azerbaijan border. This placed them technically in Media, specifically the region known later as Media Minor. However, it was Cyrus who was sent to deal with them, presumably marching through Armenia and the Caucasus to reach them from his base in Lydia. We don't know when exactly the Caducian Revolt was defeated, but it was just before or just after Darius II's death in 404 BCE. But we can't kill him off yet because we just barely met the guy. So next time, we'll wind the clocks all the way back to 423 BC and catch up with the Greeks, because my god, they have been busy, busy people while the Central Empire was dealing with this nonsense. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com, where you'll get things like my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and the support page, where you can find different ways to financially support this project. That includes one-time payments and Patreon subscriptions. At patreon.com slash historyofpersia, you'll get access to bonus episodes, like my episode on Achaemenid Armenia, as well as ad-free listening and other benefits depending on your subscription tier. Of course, there are entirely free ways to support the podcast as well, like leaving a review on your platform of choice, or the absolute best, sharing it on social media and telling other people how much you like the history of Persia. Get the word out, get more ears on the podcast. That's the best I can ask for. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at History of Persia Podcast and on Twitter at History of Persia. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to the History of Persia.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.